sometimes an attack doesn't happen. Is it because of factors out of our control or is it because we made it more challenging to attack us and then the enemy's calculus changed and said, yeah, we're not going to be successful. Hi, this is Captain Adam Morton with the Canadian Army Podcast. Planning for military operations is a complicated process, but getting the right information at the right time is one of the most important parts. And that's where intelligence comes into play. My guest is Lieutenant Colonel Montgomery Price, who's the Director of Intelligence for the Canadian Army. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you very much. You know, I remember reading like Tom Clancy as a kid and thinking like intelligence collection is cold era spy wars and James Bond jumping out of airplanes. And now that I'm actually in the army, I realize maybe it's a little bit different than that. How does it all work? Well, you're not wrong with the thought that it's, you know, there could be cold war kind of things. What we do is we try and take a systematic approach to the battle space. You know, the days and age of World War I where it was, right, lads, come on, over the top, home for tea and medals, um, is gone. There is going to be, on the modern battle space, any number of assets that are flying over the battle space, interpreting the battle space from a electronic warfare signals, intelligence kind of battle space, or just people coming in off the street to come and talk to us and bring us information. So we're going to try and do absolutely everything in our power to best describe the battle space and the operating environment in which we're going to be going into, and more importantly, to describe the threat that we're going to be facing. With that being said, how would you define intelligence? So intelligence is actually defined as the end product uh, from a focused and directed collection effort where we take raw material, raw information, and we put it through a systematic analyzed approach to ensure that information is true, it's unbiased, we're discerning fact from opinion. We put it through this analytical process, and then we send that information out to decision makers in the hope that we are able to provide timely, relevant, actionable decision quality information and intelligence for senior decision makers. You know, you talk about bias and especially I think in the world that we live in now, like misinformation is a big hot button topic. How do you filter through those biases? Like what is that process that kind of takes this information that you've collected through these various sources and spits out into something that's uh, analytical and hopefully non-biased? You know, that that's a really good question. And I think that gets to the world we live in today where everybody can hop onto Twitter and, and make a statement. And the question is, you have to look at the source of that information. Who is the source? Does that person who is presenting that information, do they have bias? Do they have an agenda? Do they have an idea that they want to put forward and plant in your brain? So when we look at news agencies, we sit back and we go, okay, um, is this an article coming out of, let's say, Reuters or the Wall Street Journal? They have fact checkers. They are not going to produce or print a blatant lie. They will fact check everything that they're doing. They'll double and triple check it. And so you can trust those individuals with, you know, they're probably presenting a fact. Compare that to an agency run by a foreign government that is using the media as a tool of propaganda. Well, you have to ask your question, is the information being presented factual? Did the event actually occur? And is there an agenda that 
the person wants you to follow and to imbibe. That's the way we do it. It's not an easy process. It's more of an art than a science. We have to look at it. We have to look at the facts and separate what is difference between fact and opinion. And I would imagine that having multiple sources that you can correlate against will create opportunities where you can assess maybe the differences between those pieces of information and maybe come out with something that's true. So one of the really challenging aspects we have is one, you never trust a single source. Only from the perspective, again, one fact coming out, you never trust one picture, you never trust one person saying something, unless it's a, a very authoritative source. Uh, for example, our political leaders, I mean, if the prime minister stands up and says something, you can yeah. pretty much count on that. But you never trust one news story. You always want to have multiple sources to confirm. And so when we bring all that information back in, we can say, yes, we now have three or four different sources telling us that there are tanks in that town. And it may say there are tanks in that town or there were tanks in that town 24 hours ago. They've moved. Now we have to reassess the information and develop a new collection plan to figure out how we're going to confirm where those tanks are now. And that kind of in an interesting way, uh, we talked about this in a different podcast, but the OODA loop, right? Observe, orient, decide, and act, and the speed at which that whole process takes place, that clearly figures into that process, like when you're using your tank example, is if that is moved, you now have to go through this whole process again and then try and stay ahead of it so that you can make effective decisions like operating in your battle space. Absolutely. And one of the challenges we have with the volume of information that's being thrown at us on a daily basis is how do we parse through all of that information to shorten that sensor shooter link? Because the days and age of, oh, there's an objective and we'll hit it, you know, 24 hours from now it's almost got to be instantaneous of, you know, a remotely piloted vehicle is flying. They see a grouping of tanks. We have to be able to go and maybe switch over to the artillery and say, hey, we need to get a forward air controller or a forward observation officer. Let's start getting, you know, artillery on that objective quickly or getting fast air fighters onto that objective because it's very time sensitive. So the faster we can connect that shooter to sensor link, the more effective we will be on the battle space. You talked about some of the mechanisms, but how does, how does that machine work? Like how is an int cell structured or how does within the army headquarters, how does that mechanism work? So first and foremost, the intelligence cycle starts with direction. We need to get direction from the commander to say, I want you to look at this area. I want you to look for the following things. I will then take that and develop what's called priority intelligence requirements. Those are the big questions I need to figure out. Then I can start developing a collection plan and saying, okay, I think the enemy's going to be in such and such a location. I think they're going to do a left axis attack or they might do, you know, uh, a full frontal or they might come on right axis. And so I will develop courses of action and I will try and define the battle space in which we're operating. I will try and describe the battle space in which we're operating in terms of the terrain, the weather effects that it's going to have on the battle space, maneuverability, I'm going to identify maneuver corridors, likely avenues of approach, all of that kind of stuff. And then I will develop the collection plan, which will act in conjunction with the intelligence, surveillance, and target acquisition plan, the ISTAR plan. I will work with the other elements within the headquarters to say, great, we need to send a recce patrol to look at that bridge. We need to send engineers to look at that embankment to see whether it's a possible fording site. And so I work in conjunction with the G3 staff and the operations staff to be able to task those assets to collect that information. And that all fits into the myriad plan. 
the reports start coming back into the intelligence section and into the what's the I-STAR coordination cell, the I-STAR CC. And then we start looking at all of that information that is there and trying to derive meaning from it. Then we can do the analysis portion. Once that analysis has, has occurred and we have a finished product and we've gained knowledge and understanding from that information, now comes the task of disseminating that information and getting that information to the people that need to know it, whether it's a senior decision maker or a troop in the trenches. Our job is to make sure that that information has gone out. Because if we have a secret and we just keep it amongst ourselves, well, we're not providing value to anybody. My job is to ensure that our soldiers are as effective as they can be on the battle space. And my job is to support operations and support the warfighter. You know, I think something as a young soldier in particular, maybe you don't appreciate as much, you know, is like, oh, I have to send up the reports, you know, hourly reports and this and that. And it's always feeding that information up the chain of command. It's like, man, why are they always on me about this? That information needs to go to other places so that it can be used to make decisions. Absolutely. And I can't stress this enough that every soldier is a sensor. Every Mark I eyeball that sees something on the battle space is essential to the fight. I'll give a, a very tangible example, and this dates quite some time ago, but in Afghanistan. I remember talking to patrols who'd be driving through a town and they'd say, you know, last time we drove through the town, everyone was really happy and very friendly. And this time when we drove through, not so much. It was really something was off. Uh, kids weren't playing in the streets. And to me, that's a combat indicator. That means that there's been a change in the environment. Okay, what's going on? And so in this one instance that I'm thinking of, we actually started spending a little more time in that town and realized that a month ago, there was no presence of fighters that were wanted to do us harm. A month later, we were looking at the indicators and saying, hey, something's not right. Sure enough, we started to see more and more indications that there were fighters coming into the small town, and it was changing the feeling of the town and therefore raising our risk and our threat as we're going through that town. So every soldier on that battle space, if you see something, report it. The reason we send people out to do patrols is to collect that information, and that information gets fed in. And sometimes, you know, and I, I use the example of, to me, zero is a number. Because zero is a confirmation that there's nothing there, as opposed to it's blank. You know, when you go and you pull out your credit card statement and the system is blank, it doesn't mean that there's no money there. When you see zero, it means, ah, there's no money there. It's confirmed. And that's really my job is to go with the confirmation as best I can based on facts on the ground. So the soldier on the ground, the more they can feed those information and the more that they can feed the intelligence machine by writing your reports, bringing your pictures back, tagging your photos, talking to the chain of command, the more success we will have on the battle space. And you reference a couple of things as part of that process too. You're talking about obviously enemy tanks or enemy movements, and you spoke a little bit about terrain, embankments, because that can affect friendly and enemy movements. What are the kind of things that you're looking at as part of this process? So my job really is to focus on the three main factors of the weather, the enemy or the threat, however we choose to define that, and the terrain. So we talk about WET, weather, enemy, terrain. And so weather, obviously we have meteorological technicians that are now within the intelligence branch 
and they let us know what's going on in the battle space. And you sit back and you go, well, does the weather really matter? Ask your average ground pounding soldier, uh, <laughs> would you have liked to know that it was going to be minus 15 and raining or snowy? Uh, yeah. And especially as you get higher up, we all know we live in Canada. We understand that conducting operations in, in July is very different than conducting operations in January. Rivers will be frozen. You can go over battle spaces. The terrain is much harder. It's harder on soldiers to be able to operate in that environment. So perfect example. Artillery for the big one, wind. We all know that the minute that the uh, the round leaves the end of the cannon, um, the end of the howitzer, well, it's nature's foil to determine where it goes. If there's heavy winds and gusting, you might have to adjust your fire. So those are kinds of things that we look at. When we look at terrain, we look at is it mountainous? What are the woods? What's the soil content? Because there are areas that we know we might not be able to send tanks because the soil is too soft. So if our tanks go into an area and get bogged down and now require extraction, well, we effectively have a reduction in mobility. Well, that will significantly impact a commander's plan if he or she knows that they can't go into a certain area and it's going to bog them down. The last one, we look at the enemy or the threat. And we can define the threat in any fashion we want. So when we're talking about a domestic operation, the actual weather itself might be the threat in the instance of a hurricane or the ice storm in 1998, it was the weather itself was what was working against us. And so we needed to work on that. But when we look at a tangible enemy or a threat force from that perspective, we really look at the enemy or that threat from three different perspectives. We look at the enemy's capability. Do they have the capability in terms of equipment, personnel, training, logistics, finance, the right troops at the right location at the right time, are they amassed? So do they have the capability to actually launch an attack or be operational in that zone? We then look at whether they have a stated intent. Do they have an intent to go force on force with us or is it just bluster? And the last thing we look at is, is there a historical precedent? So I can stand up and say, hey, you know, I'm not happy with government and um, I'm going to have a demonstration. Well, I'm one person. I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a huge cohort of people all around me. I haven't done this before, so the threat is significantly less. Look at an organization like Al-Qaeda who stood up and said, we want to take out the Twin Towers. Well, this was a very well-financed organization. They had motivated, dedicated people that were capable of doing things. And they had already attempted to attack the World Trade Center on numerous occasions. And so when you look at it, you go, okay, one threat is much more credible than the other because of the fact that they have capability, they have a historical precedent, and they have a stated intent. And it's interesting that you've, you've mentioned this a couple of times too, is the credibility, reliability factor in kind of making these assessments is there's a certain level of accuracy to be provided and also considering the stores providing that information, I imagine that figures into some sort of dimension there. The challenge we, we face in intelligence is that it is an assessment. It is, in effect, an educated guess based on the facts that we have. And so we can assess that something may happen, but we will never come out as an intelligence professional and say that this will happen 100% definitive. It may happen. It has a higher probability it will happen. Chances are it will happen. So we, we try and couch language in terms of probabilities because there is always a reason that things don't happen. We may have 
reliable information that somebody wants to attack us. They have the capability, they have the stated intent, and they wake up the next morning and decide, eh, today's not the right day. Well, there is no way for me to to know that there are impeding factors preventing an attack from happening. What I can do is look at the facts and say, yep, this looks credible. This is of concern. We need to take actions to mitigate this threat. Now, where it becomes challenging is sometimes an attack doesn't happen. Is it because of factors out of our control that the attack didn't happen? Or is it because we mitigated those factors, increased our defensive posture, made it more challenging to attack us, and then the enemy's calculus changed and said, yeah, we're not going to be successful. We're not going to happen today. So it's a bit of a chicken or the egg question. Did the attack not happen because we were really good or there were out factors outside of our play? I would hope that it's because we're really good and we took the appropriate actions and I made and my staff made the appropriate recommendations to a commander to mitigate that threat. Well, and it kind of comes into the factor of also just being a hard target, right? So is if you can inform in mechanisms that may affect that enemy calculus, like you said, and the combat arms, the people on the ground have the ability to implement those those measures, then you're constantly, you know, we talked about the OODA loop earlier on, is you're also getting inside of their decision-making process, and then that can affect the outcome, like you said, just inherently by changing how you're doing business. Absolutely. I mean, and a perfect example, unfortunately, is anyone who was in Afghanistan, we always talked about the white Toyota Corolla. Uh, suicide bomber on a white Toyota Corolla. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that we had a historical precedent of people who had used white Toyota Corollas to attack us. We probably had information suggesting that it was a white Toyota Corolla. And so you run that gamut where the one day you don't report it is the day that it actually happens. And then the intelligence staff is stuck with the guilt that, hey, I knew this happened. I didn't say anything. And so we will err on the side of caution to ensure the survivability of our troops. Our entire raison d'être is to ensure the survivability of the troops and the effectiveness of the troops on the battle space. And so we will do what we can with the information that we have, trying not to be alarmist, to provide best advice to the commander and his or her staff and the rest of the troops on the field. With this being said, how does this connect into the international community? Because Obviously, like in a global information environment like that we exist in right now, you know, information sharing is critical and there's so many different avenues of collecting information. How do the international partners come into play with that? So we are part of a arguably the largest intelligence organization in the world, and that is the Five Eyes Partnerships. And that is a partnership that is with the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, New Zealand and Australia and Canada. We share information for the mutual benefit of each other. We are also part of alliances like NATO and NORAD. So we share information with our NATO partners of that is of interest to them. And all of this information is there to assist each other and ensure that we have is a well-informed picture to ensure the safety, the security, and the stability of our operations, wherever they may be in the world or at home. What's the most interesting part of your job or one of the most interesting parts of your job as it stands right now, would you say? That's I mean, that's a really hard question to answer. What I find absolutely amazing is seeing the amount of information that is out there and how much information is actually available uh, on open source intelligence, which is information that's available in the public domain. If you spend some time and research effectively, you would be amazed at the amount of knowledge you can acquire that's out there. Yes, we have classified systems and technical means to to acquire information, but 
we could probably get 80 to 90% of what we need from open sources right now. So it's interesting you mentioned that because there's a lot of examples of information gathering and crowdsourcing. Like there's every month there's something popping up on Reddit where a bunch of people get together. I think one of the best examples was they were trying to find the location of a flagpole and through a bunch of different efforts, they were looking at contrails of aircraft and managed to locate this flag in the middle of nowhere. So open source has a lot of applications, even in just normal day-to-day internet life. Yeah. And I'll use a really good example. And I think this is this is good with regards to just personal security. You see on things like Facebook or Reddit, and they say, hey, let's have a fun competition where we say, let's post the name of our first dog, the name of our first car that we own, the name of our first grade teacher. Well, what you're effectively doing is answering all of the questions that a credit card company is asking you as personal security measures for your credit card. And so I would say to anybody out there, be very cautious about providing too much information out in the public sector because one piece of information on its own is not that worrisome. But multiple pieces of information from multiple sources starts to become a really powerful tool. And so be very cautious of what you're putting out there publicly on the internet, because there are people watching, there are people very interested in what we do. And certainly from a national perspective as Canada, we are part of the five eyes. We are a senior NATO partner, and we are right next to the largest military industrial complex in the world. People are very interested in what Canada is doing. So we need to be very cautious of what we do and what we put out there uh, on, um, on open source. So you hear a lot about things being classified. What does that mean? And what what are some of the challenges in dealing with classified intelligence? One of the challenges we face in the intelligence world is that a lot of the information we get is from sources that we want to protect. We also oftentimes want to protect the method in which we collected it. So the information itself is important. But the method that we use, did we use a human source? Did we use a remotely piloted vehicle? Did we use electronic warfare, a piece of very high technology equipment that we don't want to demonstrate our capabilities to the enemy? So we want to protect that as much as we can. So that's why we tend to classify things. The other thing too, as I mentioned before, we're part of alliances in NATO and the Five Eyes and NORAD. And so oftentimes other countries will share information with us. Well, it's a bit like... If someone lends you your car, you don't just go and lend it to anybody on the street. You say, no, I'm going to protect that car. Right. It's uh, You've got to be smart about it. So if someone is giving us information, we have to protect it. And oftentimes they will give it to us, but they'll dictate the terms on which they'll give it to us and dictate the terms of the security classification. So that's why we protect things. That's why we classify them. And it's, I'll be honest with you, there are times it's a pain. It's really frustrating <laughs> yeah, to I have, bet. you know, I've got information. Uh, okay. But my job is to get the required information to the people that need it as quickly as I can. As I said, there's no point in me holding information up at the top. And, you know, you see in the movies, oh, I can't give that to you. You're not cleared. Yeah, um, no. If you're going into a firefight and you need the information, we'll find a way to get it to you. Don't worry. So with regards to the intelligence environment, what kind of jobs are there in there? Like, Obviously, we have the officer and the NCO dynamic. Care to explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So my job as an intelligence officer is not necessarily to be the best intelligence analyst. My job is to 
drive and fight the intelligence organization to respond to the commander's needs. So I'm involved in collection planning. Yes, of course, I'm involved in some analysis. I have to be a good analyst to understand what's going on on the battle space. But I'm driving that information and really doing the staff function and the leadership functions. Where we have information exploitation operators at the very lowest level, those are our privates and corporals. Those are the nuts and bolts of the intelligence infrastructure. Those are the people that are receiving the information. They are collating that information and putting it into databases so that it's retrievable, it's findable. We can analyze that information. And then we start having specialties within the intelligence field. So you can have what's called an imagery analyst. This is a two-year-long course, and it is someone who does nothing but looks at imagery, analyzes it to derive meaning from it. We can have an, a signals intelligence specialist. They also do electronic warfare, and they are specialists in understanding the electromagnetic spectrum and information that is flying around in all of the radio signals and all of the data that's coming through, and they, they focus specifically on that. You can have a geomatics technician who is, a, is actually part of the engineering function, and their job is to produce maps and understand terrain and the effects. You can have meteorological technicians who are looking at the weather. There are any number of trades that are, fall within the intelligence umbrella, but all of them highly specialized, highly trained, a significant amount of education that goes into it. But some really, really interesting stuff. As we say, you know, they make movies about what I do. <laughs> nice. So if we look at how the army is evolving and doing the modernization thing and looking at digitalization, what impact do you think that's going to have on the intelligence branch? It's going to have a huge impact. When we look, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have things like Google Earth or Waze, which is a, like a traffic-finding um, utility on your phone. Nowadays, through crowdsourcing, we can go down and using Google Earth and Google Maps, you can find a restaurant with a satellite image imposed onto a grid-referenced map. It's got Yelp reviews. And if you go down far enough into it, you can grab things like a lot long and an MGRS number uh, grid reference for that location. Where we're really going to see things as things evolve is much more of an involvement of artificial intelligence and machine learning. It's going to be those algorithms where we're going to be able to take millions upon millions of data points. And rather than an individual having to go and look through them individually, we'll be able to parse through them using an artificial intelligence algorithm. It's going to change the way we do business. It's already changing the way we do business, and technology and digitization is going to become the future. For someone who wants to get into intelligence, what would you say to them? Do it. <laughs> it's a really interesting trade. There are any number of challenges. Like anything, we're short-staffed. We need smart, driven, motivated soldiers, sailors, air personnel, and CANSOF personnel operators to come in and, and work with us. What I will say this is that it's one of the most demanded trades at the recruiting center. I know that pilots, because everybody wants to be Top Gun and, and fly fighters, and I don't blame them, but our intelligence officer is number two uh, at the recruiting office. It is an incredibly challenging job. It's an interesting job. And unfortunately, I think it's a job that's going to be a growth industry for the foreseeable future. Thanks so much for taking the time to unpack all of this for us and explain what it all looks like. Thanks for coming on the podcast, sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. That was Lieutenant Colonel Montgomery Price, Director of Intelligence for the Canadian Army. If you're looking for a career in intelligence or in any other trade in the Canadian Armed Forces, visit forces.ca and take a look at all the cool jobs that are there waiting for you. 
I'm Captain Adam Morton for the Canadian Army Podcast. Morton out. <laughs>